You're listening to episode 228 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, the West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by the great Dan Feinberg, THR's chief TV critic. How's it going, my friend? Well, just uh, weathered the hurricane slash tropical storm last weekend and getting excited for the USC football opener this Saturday. And basically, life is going on. Uh, but yeah, things are things are both busy and sort of sporadically quiet. So the usual. How about you? Yeah, getting ready to see Metallica twice this weekend. I'm very excited about that. Uh, Dodgers crushing it. Mookie's having a great month. Sorry about uh, rubbing that in to my beloved Red Sox co-host. Um, but yeah. It's okay. I've, I've had time to get over that one. <laughs> there is the series, the Do- Mookie Returns to Fenway, coming up. So that'll be a fun, fun one to see for sure. Otherwise, uh, yeah, we're in the, the dog days of summer. And uh, just a programming note, we are going to be off next week, Friday, September 1st, ahead of the Labor Day holiday. Our next episode will be September 8th, so enjoy this one for two weeks. But no, our email line is still open for mailbag questions, and come September 8th, we'll have all sorts of exciting, fun stuff to talk about. But make this one last. anyway. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe we won't. Who knows? I I would like to believe we'll have stuff to talk about. Whether or not it's fun stuff, who knows? I I am not the boss of fun. Well, you mentioned the mailbag, and well considering that the dual strikes have definitely hampered the amount of news that's coming out in our industry, we're going to continue replacing headlines with a mailbag. This time, this episode, you're going to get not one, but two mailbag segments for the price of one, which is the price of none because our episodes are free. Anyway, number one, we're going to do a mailbag to start here, but these are going to be strike themed questions. So getting underway, Russ, has a question for you, Dan. While it might be able to write a show, can AI review a show? First of all, it's only sort of tangentially a uh, strike-related question, though we've been talking a lot about AI on this podcast lately. Go back a few weeks and listen to our conversation with uh, Justine Bateman. Go back one week and listen to our conversation with uh, Simon Rich. I hope that we've been doing a good job of freaking you guys out about the prospect of what AI could do to all of our lives. Uh, So thank you, Russ, for freaking me out about the prospect of what AI could do for my life. (laughs) A couple of weeks ago, we had a question asking if when I go into a review, I go in with a specific checklist. And I said that I didn't. And I want to take a step back from that quickly and note that I, I wasn't trying to criticize any critics who actually do that. I think actually, if you are a fledgling critic, a baby critic, and you want to figure out how to write a review, starting out with the checklist is actually a perfectly viable thing to do. You know, here are the things that I want to make sure I get to. Have I talked about acting? Have I talked about production values? Have I talked about theme and execution of theme? You know, those are fully valid things. So following along those lines, I think it's absolutely possible and probably very likely that you could have some sort of AI system that would be able to evaluate certain aspects of a television show or a movie on the basis of certain things on a checklist. Now, could they do it well? No, of course not, because AI doesn't have a voice. It doesn't have a past. It doesn't have knowledge. It doesn't have necessarily, well, I mean, it definitely has the ability to 
connect data sets, but it it doesn't have it doesn't really have subjectivity at the moment at which it has genuine subjectivity, then we start getting really, really scared. But in terms of the actual ability to give pieces of information that are of valid use to a reader, which is a lot of what I think I like to do as a critic is make sure that when you read my reviews, I've told you the five things that you wanted to know. I, I think that an AI probably could do something resembling that. Now, would it have the same effect as a critic with whom you have five years, 10 years, 20 years of you know history reading them? You know their voices. I, I like to think that people read me not necessarily because I say thumbs up or thumbs down, but because they know they can trust me over many, many years. So obviously, an AI would not be a thing you'd be able to do. So the answer is yes and no. Now, the thing I want to get to out of this question is a thing that it immediately made me think of, is once you have an AI that is capable of doing some sort of evaluative situation on a television show or movie, at what point are the various studio people going to notice that an AI could probably do the job of dozens upon dozens of mid-level development executives and studio executives. Because if all it is, is we're looking for a script that checks these boxes and that has these elements, an AI can do that as well as somebody sitting in an office in Burbank in theory. Now, would I want that? No, because I like people to be employed. And once again, would its preferences be the same as someone who had spent 20 years reading scripts and talking to writers? Of course not. Would an AI development executive be able to go out on a limb for something that it was passionate for? No. Again, going back to me, would an AI be able to tell you to watch reservation dogs on a weekly basis? Probably yes, but you know, would would it have the passion for it that I do? I don't know. But anyway, once you train AI to do certain things, it's not just writers and directors and actors whose jobs it's going to be taking away. It's it's going to take away a lot of jobs. Now, is that the path of progress in general? Of course it is, to some degree. Is it terrifying? Maybe just a little. So yeah, the the answer to Russ's question is yes, kind of, sort of. But at that point, you're into an entire avalanche wherein AI is going to be taking over all of our jobs and we're just going to be harvesting potatoes for computers or something to that effect. Anyway, now I'm sad and depressed and (sighs) fine. Okay. (laughs) Our next question comes from Etienne, who asks... How can hosts and voiceover actors continue to work even though SAG is on strike? Are they not members of SAG? Big Brother still has uh, its narrator in the intro. Previously on Big Brother, etc. Joel McHale has been announced as the host of some e-new show. And that's not to mention that somebody has to write what they're saying. Aren't they members of the WGA? And my MBL stepped down for Jeopardy. Didn't she have to anyway? So a lot of kind of interconnected questions about who exactly can do what and why some people can do some things and other people cannot do other things. Leslie Opine. Yeah, well, first, Maya Bialik opted to step down in support of the WGA. Ken Jennings is staying on uh, as the show is using recycled questions and recycled contestants in the upcoming season 40. As for the other questions, I consulted THR's fantastic labor reporter and friend of the five, Katie Kilkenny, for this one. And essentially, the answer is is pretty simple. Some unscripted shows do not fall under SAG or WGA contracts, and some fall under the SAG network code contract. So the network code 
which tends to include game shows and competition shows, for example, that is not being renegotiated right now. So those workers are not on strike. So basically, if a show has written material that is covered by the WGA, yes, you're on strike. But if the show itself doesn't fall under WGA or SAG the way that a traditional scripted show does, you're clear. So it's it's very in the weeds, this answer. It's, it's a case-by-case scenario. So rather than kind of going through and looking at Big Brother and Joel McHale's, whatever that, that show is, et cetera, it's, it's a show-by-show thing. It's very in the weeds answer. So it depends on the individual contracts of the show. A reminder, if you have questions that you'd like to hear Dan and I discuss on future episodes, go ahead and drop us an email at TV's Top 5. That's the numeral 5 at THR.com. Number 2. Up second, we are returning to the Strike Zone, as we do, for what has been a busy week with the National Day of Solidarity rally that brought out thousands to the Disney lot, and more importantly, or more specifically to what we do, the AMPTP decided to quote-unquote release its counteroffer to the WGA, which caused a lot of rumbling. Leslie, break down what happened this week, what the deal was with the AMPTP's counteroffer, and why it irked people as much as it did. Yeah, well, well, first of all, let's put things in context. This week, the strike became the third longest in Writers Guild history at 114 days and counting. That surpassed only by work stoppages in 1960 and 1988. So in terms of what else is going on this week, we know that just hours after members of the WGA, SAG-AFTRA, the Directors Guild, and scores of other union representatives closed the streets uh, here in my lovely Burbank community around the corner from Disney at this massive solidarity rally that that brought out thousands, including some great speeches from the likes of Kerry Washington and Martin Sheen. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers, which represents the studios and streamers, sent out details of its August 11th counteroffer to the Writers Guild of America, and it has not gone over well. The offer, which does include gains for the Writers Guild on core issues, including data transparency, not completely great, mind you, but there are some protections with AI, increases for residuals, some protections against mini rooms, but the Writers Guild just ripped it to shreds in a statement that was released near midnight Pacific time Tuesday. The WGA told its members that the offer, quote, failed to sufficiently protect writers. And it also accused the AMPTP of leading an effort, quote, not to bargain, but to jam us. So basically, there have been a couple of different narratives. Obviously, there are going to be narratives that come out of this based on what the AMPTP's counteroffer included. You can debate all the various loopholes that exist. This is a a word that was in the WGA's response to it, as well as things that from comments that I've heard from many writers out on the picket lines this week. The big picture is just the the mere act of the studios and streamers releasing their counter offer to the general public. They set out a press release. We covered it. Everyone in town covered it. It is news about a major issue in our town. But just the mere act of them putting this out 
didn't go over because a lot of guild members look at this as simply a ploy to get the WGA to crack. The irony here is that this all came after this massive solidarity rally that included great speeches from a WGA board member, Liz Alper, whose uh, comments were terrific. She's a good follow on Twitter as well if you're interested in, in, in the weeds of the strike. But they see the Writers Guild sees this effort by the AMPTP as an, a way to get the guild to crack after 114 plus days and counting. And it's actually doing the opposite. So what we also know is that in the WGA's response, they said that meetings took place this week that included chiefs from Disney, NBC Universal, Netflix, and Warner Brothers Discovery, as well as AMPTP chief negotiator Carol Lombardini. But the meeting the union said was more of a, quote, lecture of, about how good their single and only counter offer was. Writers that I spoke with on the picket lines this week said that their counter offer was, quote, an unforced error. We talk a lot about optics on this show. And if you're looking at things in terms of optics, this specifically, the AMPTP, it just from my vantage point, seems completely and totally out of touch. It's like they're not even opening Twitter just to see what the, the general feeling among the writers is. So if they're you know, from from what we know is that the AMPTP was supposed to put out their counter offer last Friday, but as the Wall Street Journal reported this week, the studios and streamers actually thought the WGA would take this offer to members. That obviously didn't happen, and instead, all it's done is further solidify the guild's resolve in seeking a fair contract. It's they've basically created a bigger mess here rather than engaging in negotiations like a lot of these these points that they put out in their counteroffer these are things that they should have discussed in April not 4 months into the strike as they're you know who who knows what's happening with with what their their content reserves look like i mean it, it's kind of preposterous dan i think the thing you just said there was my major takeaway is that if this offer had been an offer that had been put forward on day two of the strike then you get to spend the next 114 days negotiating and bantering back and forth. And, and that to me seems kind of like what you're supposed to do in these circumstances. Again, negotiation is ideal. And the fact that the AMPTP wouldn't even go to a table until 100 plus days in is what it is. But it, but that's the part that I find bizarre is, is this 100 plus in, days in, you're probably not just going to randomly come up with a counter proposal that goes, okay, sure. Well, and also, if they had decided to do that, that would have also been kind of vaguely irritating if they could have done this 50 days or 75 days ago. Definitely, I feel as if there was an expectation that this was going to be greeted with more excitement and enthusiasm than it absolutely seems to have been based on my own bubble and the reaction of writers <laughs> who I respect within my bubble. But I don't know. The other, the other alternative interpretation is just what we said last week, which is this is negotiation. And this, even if it is not a good counter offer at that point, then it's up to the WGA to come back and say, okay, well, you've met us this far. Now, <laughs> now come meet us this much further along because that's what we want. And presumably that's how negotiations are supposed to ideally go. Yeah. The other thing that that came up from a couple of people that I that I was talking to this week, some on the studio side, some on the picket lines, said that this might have just been the AMPTP doing something that was, I don't couldn't use the word that this source said, but performative, basically saying that the AMPTP put this out to show Wall Street that they are trying to make a deal. And, you know, as we re record this, I'm seeing that Disney shares 
are at their their lowest in years. Let's see, what I'm seeing now is Disney stock price is at its lowest since the second quarter of 2014. That's not not notable. But, you know, obviously this this strike is having a a dire effect on, on a lot of them. But we do know that they are, they do have money in the bank. But again, they, no one from what I'm hearing, no one wants to really give the writers a good deal because this would be setting a precedent. And while we've said on this show multiple times that this strike, that, that, that the AMPTP could give the WGA and SAG everything that they are asking for, but they don't want to do it because it sets a precedent. Not that they don't want to give them everything that they're asking. Think of it this way, Dan, if if I get get hired by the Dodgers and my base salary is $2 million, which, oh my God, dream job. I don't care what it would do, what I would do for $2 million to work for the Dodgers, but that what you're doing is you're setting a precedent that every time that I come to you and say, if I'm doing a great job and I want to raise, I'm already making $2 million and you have to increase from there. That means that the next person that they hire in that position has a starting salary of $2 million. So in three years, hypothetically, the AMPTP comes back with the WGA when the, when whenever the, the new minimum basic agreement is, is official and the strike ends. But they're going to have to build upon this deal for the future. Each round of negotiations is going to have to build. So that's why they don't want to give them anything. It's more money that that, that future Disney and future Netflix is going to have to pay out. And that's part of what they're fighting against. Can you tell I'm getting getting sick of talking about the strike? I'm stuck also on your uh, yeah. working for the Dodgers analogy. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, I just got because the the reality is, as all of our listeners know, that uh, you would ditch this podcast in THR in a second to go work for the Dodgers if they offered you two Dodger dogs and a bucket of stale popcorn. So, so I this mean, whole I don't like Dodger dogs, but yeah. <laughs> So this whole $2 million thing doesn't really ring true to me. But you get the idea. It was a bad, maybe a bad example. Well, no, but it's the whole conversation of basically everybody, though, is thinking about what the future looks like, not what the Mm -hmm. present looks like. Everyone has to be negotiating around what the world is going to look like in three years, because the truth is the world is changing so constantly that what we think the world is going to look like in three years is unlikely to be what the world is going to look like in three years, because the TV landscape sure as hell doesn't look like what the negotiators thought it was going to look like in 2007, 2008 when they were doing this. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah. like we say, you know, the the last strike in 2007 and, and 08, that was focused on new media, which has completely disrupted the traditional television uh, business model. So instead of just going line by line in in these negotiations, what they what both sides really need to do is sit down and come up with an effective business model that works for both sides. Because we know that, okay, if you create a streaming show and you put it on Netflix, you have to retain international rights and worldwide rights. And that's great if you're Netflix, which is a global platform. But if you're a, a platform like Peacock that may or may not have, have launched internationally, that's costing you money. You have to retain those rights for when you launch in those territories because you can't always sell off rights to help offset the co- the rising costs of, of programming. So if everyone wants to keep all of their content in their own ecosystem, the models don't work. There's no foreign residuals to, to, to pay anyone. If Stranger Things is a hit on Netflix, you have the general public, us, we've been saying since this show launched in late 2018, we have no way of knowing what's a hit. We're taking your word. Obviously, we can we can look at people talking about it, but how are creatives supposed to get paid for that? How does Netflix further monetize that? Like, how is a, a show that's made for a streaming platform going to turn a profit if you're not able to sell it internationally or to sell SVOD rights? 
maybe you start doing the reverse syndication, right? You've seen a couple of, of made-for-streaming shows that have wound up airing on linear. I think, God, what was that old animated show that ne- that was on Netflix? They sold it to um, for a second window. Comedy Central aired, aired repeats of it. This was like years ago. I can't remember the name of it. But the point is, is that the, the entire system of profitability of TV programming has been completely wiped away by the, the advent of streaming. And all of these companies, all of these big conglomerates followed the Netflix business model, but the Netflix business model doesn't work. And here we are. So put your heads together, come up with a new system that does. I have no suggestions. I'm just calling it as I see it. Send your hate mail to TV's top five. That's the numeral five at THR.com. This just in, the WGA has issued a bigger response to the AMPTP's counteroffer. The WGA says that during the meeting with the CEOs, the negotiating committee spent two hours explaining that though progress had been made with the counteroffer, the language of the AMPTP's offer was quote, as is typical of that body, a version of giving with one hand and taking back with the other. So as I review more of this uh, document that that just came in, there's a lot of in the weeds back and forth on some of the deal points. But what's funny is that they are now providing a chart looking at the cost of the WGA proposal and saying that the cost of the percentage of revenue cost to each of the conglomerates, as I mentioned, is far less than 0.1% almost for everyone. For the companies to settle this strike, for example, Disney, the per cost of its total revenue is 0.088%. The biggest cost uh, would be to Netflix, which is 0.206%. So these are, again, are, are drops in the bucket and goes with my point of saying it, that they're not it's not that they don't have the money and can't afford to do this. It's that they they don't want to set the precedent. Basically, what the WGA negotiating committee is now saying is that in the past 36 hours, that its membership has responded that it is, quote, undeterred by the AMPTP's latest tactic. Here's a good quote. Despite the AMPTP's attempt at a detour around us, we remain committed to direct negotiations with the company. That's actually how a deal gets made and the strike ends. That will be good for the rest of the industry and the companies as well. There's the latest you have on, on the strike. And the the statement makes clear. It says the company's uh, counteroffer is neither nothing nor nearly enough. We will continue to advocate for proposals that fully address our issues rather than accept half measures like those mentioned above and other proposals not listed here. Like that, to, that sentence to me boils down to this is a negotiation and that's how this goes. The chart that you mentioned of percentage uh, of revenues is an interesting one and it it's interesting but also rather wholly predictable in the sense that obviously for the companies who have uh, many, many other sources of revenue, it's a ridiculously small percentage of revenue, like for Amazon or for Apple, where television programming is not really what they make their money off of. You know, for for Amazon, it would be 0.006% of revenue. And for Apple, it would be uh, 0.004%. So basically, that's saying, look, we know your money comes from lots and lots of other places. For Disney, it's smaller because Disney has its myriad sources of other income. And then for Netflix, it's obviously higher because that's their business. It's what they do. But even in that case, it's 0.206% of revenue. So, you know, even in the case that's the most, that's what you're looking at, which does not seem particularly big to me, but 
ain't my profit. So, so what do I know? There, a lot of the statements that have come out of the WGA have by nature been strident because that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be passionate. It's supposed to be zealous. Let's not go with strident. Let's go with zealous. You know, you've heard Chris Kaiser on the podcast multiple times. He is a man who is zealous in his support of the union. And professionally, that's his job. And, you know, that's part of why we like talking to him. This definitely feels much more like a statement that the WGA put out with full awareness that it's going to be go to both the writers and to reporters covering it. This this does feel like a an attempt to surely not give any indication that things are getting close, but also to not be overtly hostile. It's to say, okay, here is where the counteroffer came in. Here is why the AMPTP thinks it's a good offer. Here is why we disagree. Here are, you know, they use the word loopholes a couple times. And of course they do, because that was the case also with the deal that the DGA accepted. Lots of people looked at that deal, and particularly when it came to the AI portion of it, said, yes, they're making accommodations, but the number of loopholes are all over the place. And so, you know, to some degree, the AMPTP is obviously attempting to use the pattern of the of the DGA deal in a positive way, but also, but that doesn't apply to writers. It doesn't the, apply to directors. Writers, have but- yeah, directors have little to fear with of AI. You, you can't have an you know an, some AI on set saying, okay, we need a, a shot from this angle or whatever. But like what the WGA is saying now uh, in its latest update to members here on on Thursday at about one p.m. Pacific time, they're saying we have had real discussions and seen movement on their part regarding AI protections, but we are not yet where we need to be. As one example, the AMPTP continues to refuse to regulate the the use of WGA work to train AI to write new content for a motion picture. So these are big, big, big issues that will help protect writing as a profession. But the one bullet point that I do want to read, it goes directly to what we've been saying again about viewership transparency. So the WGA told members, the company say that they have made a major concession by offering to allow six WGA staff to study limited streaming viewership data for the next three years. And the WGA says, quote, so we can return in 2026 to once again ask for a viewership-based residual. In the meantime, no writer can be told by the WGA about how well their project is doing, much less receive a residual based on that data. So again, guarding that that viewership with everything that they have. That to me, of all of the things in the AMPTP uh, counter proposal was the thing that felt most easy to take a step back and go that's ridiculous because the way that they presented it was was sort of a little bit like we're going to allow several WGA representatives to go into a dark room and to look at these statistics and never to be allowed to yeah. mention we'll it open ever up the again book just a little bit so you can get a teeny tiny peek but watch your fingers because we're going to snap that shit closed faster than that scene from what was that pretty woman yeah <laughs> Yes, indeed. You know, so yeah, that and, and I, of course it's it's with the jewelry box in that for people who are yeah, too exactly. old to remember Pretty Woman. That to me of of all of the things in the in the AMPTP counterproposal, that was the thing that was most immediately to my mind a thing where you knew people were going to say, yeah, that's just not going to work. That's not a <laughs> that's not a way of getting this done. You know, of course the AMPTP's argument is consistently going to be we don't know how this thing is working, so just take us on faith and we're going to kick this ball down the field three more years. And the WGA is saying, we don't know that there's any precedent that says that taking you on faith is a particularly good idea for our membership. I mean, look at what happened with new media and streaming. Yeah, That's how we got here in the first place. 
Let me make it clear. I understand why that is a perspective. What I was saying, though, about the DGA and and the pattern of it is, I think that that is a sort of reasonable thing that the WGA seems to be doing on this is saying, look, you know, we know we know that this is the way you want to go down this road, but we're closing the loopholes that you left open with the WGA. We don't want to have those same loopholes because, as you say, it's a different situation that writers have with AI vis-a-vis what the others have. So anyway. Yeah, and, this, and SAG-AFTRA has their own issues with, it, of course. with AI too uh, that we've already Which, seen affecting them. So anyway, topic for another day. And a topic for people who want to go back and listen to our conversation with Justine Bateman. So Yeah, just to be clear, Justine Bateman joined us in episode 223 from July 21st of this year. And then if you want to go back and listen again, Simon Rich was really terrifying about AI and room size. That would be episode 227 from August 18th, 2023. Number three. Up third, we're not completely sure if this relates to the strike, but some people are presenting it as relating to the strike. But regardless, it's still interesting and sad and news uh, because Amazon is doing a little bit of moving things around on their programming decks for this year, for next year, into 2025 in some of these cases. It's little bit crazy. Uh, And what that meant is that several shows that were renewed have been, and this is a fun industry trend, uh, have been unrenewed. And that includes The Peripheral, a show that I promise you existed. Chloe Grace Moretz's show from the creators of Westworld. Um, That includes that show and of more germane emotional news for our podcast. uh, The four episode second and final quote unquote season of a league of their own has, as of now, been deactivated. So where do things stand and what are you hearing regarding why this happened for real? Yeah, so let, let's start uh, from what, what we know so far. So sources inside Amazon say the decision to scrap both shows was made because of the strikes, which would have delayed the arrival of both series to 2025 when the platform reportedly has a heavy roster of originals. So for those unfamiliar with what that means is they're already going to be spending. They have a mark. Everyone has a marketing budget for every specific year. And when you look at the cost of promoting what say you have Lord of the Rings coming out in 2025 season two, that's a a big amount of marketing spend to get people to tune into that show. And when you have a full plan for what's coming out in 2024, 2025 and beyond, your marketing dollars are earmarked for those things. So what Amazon is, is alleging here is that having both of these shows arrive in 2025, they wouldn't have the money to promote them. And that the strikes have delayed production. Obviously, we know what we know is that uh, a league of their own, for example, the four episodes were, were already written, and they were the show was in pre-production at the, when the the WGA strike began in May. So I don't know what the, what the stat of the peripheral for season two is, but sources tell me that that Amazon CEO Andy Jassy has been reviewing content spending at Amazon Studios and has been particularly tough on decisions that have been made by Jen Salky and her top lieutenant Vernon Sanders. So, yeah, delaying shows until years after they debut is an expensive venture. It obviously the big part of that is trying to get audiences to return to to a show and A in a peak TV landscape and B when it's been years since the last season aired. So the case with League, sources say, is that while the show is said to have not performed especially well, 
Amazon executives stood behind it creatively and felt that it was an important show to bring back. Yet the cancellation should be seen as Amazon looking at it as an opportunity to clean house under Jassy after years of unchecked free spending by Salky and her team. So Peripheral also at the same time didn't have the performance internally that it should have gotten it a second season. But sources say Amazon wanted to keep Lisa Joy and Jonah Nolan, the showrunners behind it, happy. So you renew that show. It's an important deal. Look, Joy and Nolan, or the married showrunners behind Westworld, as you mentioned, they left Warner Brothers, which was the studio behind the HBO hit. And they now have a nine-figure overall deal at Amazon. And they're behind the big budget adaptation of the video game remake of Fallout for Amazon. And that's going allegedly supposed to be, you know, along the lines of a Lord of the Rings type thing where it's going to be a massive spend and big event for them. So it bodes well to keep them, to keep your top showrunners behind one of your most expensive projects happy. But at the same time, there is a cost to doing that because obviously you can't amortize the costs of season one of the peripheral by, by throwing more money at it in season two. So League, like like I said, was already in pre-production before the strike started with all four scripts completed. And it was, if you, as you recall, it was a months-long negotiation between Amazon and Sony Pictures Television, which is the studio that owns League of Their Own and licenses it to Amazon. And those negotiations resulted in Sony lowering its licensing fee to make the show more affordable to Amazon. Obviously, four episodes, no one wanted that, let alone as as a final season. But doing an abbreviated episode count on on a lower licensing fee makes the show more affordable. So that's out the window now. So what we know is season one, eight episodes of of A League of Their Own is said to have cost in the ballpark of about $90 We know series co-creator and co-showrunner and former TV's top five guest Will Graham reportedly questioned and got Amazon to drop its practice of ranking shows based on audience testing as they figured out were biased because there was a big Amazon story that uh, Kim Masters wrote with a little help from myself. What we uncovered is that Graham found the audience testing and, and executives based on the responses of that testing wanted the show to steer away from its queer relationships, which if you've seen the show is literally what the show is. It's if you haven't seen it, A League of Their Own, it's filling in the blanks that that Penny Marshall's 1992 movie only hinted at, right? So the fact that there were black women playing baseball, the fact that most members of the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League were, in fact, gay. It's a lot. The money quote from this has been from Abby Jacobson, who co-starred, co-created, and co-showran the show. She ripped Amazon for the decision and posted on Instagram, Quote, to blame this cancellation on the strike is bullshit and cowardly, she wrote, noting that the show had already been, quote, put through the ringer. So we know about the audience testing. We know that the efforts that the show had to to go through in order to even make it on the air. You know, when you look at the TV landscape and the things that Amazon is greenlighting, Jack Ryan, Reacher, these are big, bold shows with straight white dudes at the center. You kind of get a hint of what's working for them and what their audience testing is telling them. In terms of Other responses, Graham also posted a really beautiful note to fans confirming that the show will be shopped after the WGA strike is resolved and encouraging fans who are also part of the LGBTQIA plus community to continue making noise as their, quote, biggest fear is that the many queer fans of League will take this reversal as 
one more invalidation, one more blow, one more effect of the general politicization of our identities. Yeah, they wrote a really beautiful piece. Uh, we look for it on their social and on THR.com. And by the way, if you didn't realize, uh, Will Graham actually changed their pronouns and came out as non-binary after working on the show and hearing from everyone's responses and, and their own coming out stories that were inspired by viewing it. Art is important. Art that reflects society is important. And this was no exception. I'm heartbroken. I'm, and I really, really hope that someone else steps up to the plate, pun, pardon the pun, and picks up this show for, for a second and, and hopefully third and fourth and fifth and sixth seasons. Cause there, there's a lot of story to tell here. Well put. Number four. Up next, we return to the mailbag this time, non-strike related questions. Our first question comes from Josie who asks, since programming has slowed down with the double strike summer, I'm using this time to watch popular TV shows I missed when they originally aired. My current obsession is The Vampire Diaries, and and I'm about halfway through season two. What made the show a cultural phenomenon? Dan, your opinion on the show. For a while, loved Vampire Diaries. I think it is a, it's, well, it's not a tough show to get into. You just have to kind of make your way through kind of the first six or seven episodes when when Julie Pleck and, and Kevin Williamson were a little bit more stuck on the source material than they needed to be. There are sort of strange subplots that don't go anywhere, mostly because they happen to be in the book, like the Salvatores playing football at the high school and stuff, because that's a thing that's in the book for no good reason. Uh, but once the show got into its groove. And I think, as I said, I think that happens seven or eight episodes into the first season and then continues for two to three solid seasons uh, where it was just locked in. It was a great example of the kind of show that it was trying to be. Uh, They burnt through plot at an insane rate. They were going through full seasons worth of arcs in one or two episodes that episodes would have one or two major cliffhangers per every single episode. And it was tremendously entertaining to watch because you simply never knew what ridiculous corner the show was going to back itself into. And for a long time, it was fairly reliable at getting itself out of those corners in entertaining ways. And it was such a good core cast, whether I'm particularly starting with Nina Dobrev, who I don't think ever got the credit that she deserved for playing multiple versions of the the main role. Then obviously Ian Summerhalter and Paul Wesley were, were very good as well. The supporting cast, uh, you know, they found good, smart ways of using them and and figuring out what their strengths were. It did all of the things that a CW show was supposed to do, ideally should have done. I think there were two years in there where I had uh, The Vampire Diaries in my top 10 for the respective year, which, you know, seemed kind of uh, <laughs> impressive at the time, both a broadcast show, but also a, a CW supernatural soap. I, you know, not the kind of thing you see all the time. Now, did the show get to a point where it both went on too long and kind of became excessively wrapped up in its own mythology and episodes became kind of doppelganger this, doppelganger that, ripper this, ripper that? It, it, it absolutely got to a point where the show went on too long and, and wasn't as good at successfully backing out of the corners that it put itself into. There, there's no question about that. 
also the show because it had the spinoff with the originals a lot of some of the more interesting things that were happening on the show kind of migrated over to the originals and left vampire diaries spinning its wheels a little bit uh, aggressively spinning its wheels no point at which the show became boring definitely points at which the show became needlessly chaotic now Josie hasn't necessarily gotten those points so now I've now I've warned Josie and hopefully that will make a difference uh, but no at, at its peak Vampire Diaries was as good as it gets for doing the thing that it did and and I fully respect how good the show was for for two or three seasons towards the beginning after the kind of bumpy beginning so yeah I I, I loved Vampire Diaries for a while and in the balance I quite liked it and quite respected it and and going back to the part about what made it such a cultural phenomenon is the answer of lots of those CW shows became cultural phenomenons to various different degrees whether it was all of the different DC shows whether it was the brief window of time where Riverdale rest in peace was probably a cultural phenomenon itself etc what made it to me better than those is that all of the things that those shows did well whether it was the love triangles or or again the plot churn and the cliffhangers vampire dice just did it better it's just to me kind of the best example of the YA supernatural CW show, which is not to say it's the best example of a, of a CW show. Cause you know, they, people will have their various support for things like, uh, the chain, the virgin or, or crazy ex-girlfriend or whatever. Uh, but, but the genre that it was in is one that gets buzz and it absolutely did it as well as anyone. And it also really helped set the tone for what the future of the CW was going to be. This is a show that that launched in September 2009. And before that, you know, the, at the time, the CW was still a pretty new network after it was formed from the merger of the WB network and UPN. You know, there were shows that it inherited, right? Uh, Smallville, Supernatural, um, but then when you look at some of the stuff that came after, obviously, you know, Gossip Girl, Reaper, um, the 90210 reboot, which I love, the Melrose Place reboot, which I hated. But then once you saw the success of the Vampire Diaries, it really opened the path to do more in the in the genre category, which paved the way for what came later with the Arrowverse. And that was a model that was copied by Marvel, right? I mean, this was... You know, as we record this, this is you know, last night was the the series finale of Riverdale and a series finale of Nancy Drew, and with the conclusions of both shows, it really does mark the end of what the CW was when it was run by Warner Brothers and and CBS Studios and Mark Pedowitz. Now we know with Next Star coming in, you heard our interview with Brad Schwartz that would was um, back in episode two twenty five from August fourth, but you know what's ahead on the CW, and it's not scripted originals that cater to young adults, let alone, excuse me, let alone genre plays like Vampire Diaries. You know, this was a franchise that was concluded and wrapped up effectively forced to, to end by Nexstar, by the, the, the sale of the network. So this is, it was an, a really important franchise for the identity of the CW. Up next, Joy writes, what do you think is causing the rewatch slash watching of old series in 2023. It kind of made sense to me in 2020, 2021. Uh, but even though I know there's good new TV for me to watch, this year I have rewatched Good Place, iZombie, Suits, The Good Fight, and I'm currently in the middle of watching season three of my West Wing rewatch. You first, Leslie. 
Well, what I think is interesting is a lot of these shows um, that that Joy listed, these are comfort food for a lot of people. You know, people, everyone, myself included, have these shows that you watch as your fallback. Friends, Happy Endings, Parks and Recreation, Friday Night Lights, those are a few of mine. And I watch them because they are, first of all, the shows are great and they speak to me on a personal level. And it's a reset for me. It's comfort food. And I think obviously a lot of people did this in 2020 and 2021 during the pandemic. A lot of people, myself included, got to watch shows that they didn't ha make time for, right? Like I watched um, Schitt's Creek for the first time during the pandemic. I'd never seen it despite all the Emmy you know, accolades and everything else. Um, but I think what's, what's firing that up now is most of the shows that are coming out now aren't going to live beyond three or four seasons, if that. So when you're, by the time you get to know and love these characters, they're gone. And I think when you can actually sit and spend a fair amount of time with characters and you watch the story development over multiple seasons, whether it's, I think, what was a good place? Four seasons. I Zombie was certainly more than that. Suits was well, like six or seven seasons. You know, there is something to be said for spending time and not having to make these decisions. You know, like I, I listen to you every week in the Critics Corner talk about what, what to watch or skip this week. And when it comes to time to watching and, and at the end of the day, my wife and I are like, what do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? I'm like, well, I have to watch this for work. Do you want to watch this? And she's like, no. And then she goes to play video games for two hours and I watch some screeners. But it's hard to find shows that that make you care because they're gone in the blink of an eye, right? Like, look how much everyone loved Ted Lasso, and that was three seasons, and we have no idea what the future of that show is. I mean, I kind of do, but my, you get my point here, Dan. And I think part of it, too, is the platforms, because people are opening up Netflix, and boom, Suits is right there. Oh, well, what's this? Oh, there's more than three seasons and 30 episodes? Oh, what's this? Let me check this out. And this is a decision I don't have to make. You know, for me, the, the, the two things that I hate being asked the most – What's for dinner <laughs> and what should we watch? Because those are decisions and I spend all day making decisions and talking to people and it's just someone give me something easy to digest, something that I know that I'm going to love, that I can enjoy and not have to, to think. And that's where you're watching some of these comfort food things. And, and a lot of the shows that Joy mentions are shows with procedural engines. And uh, I, I think this ought to serve as a reminder to streamers that there's an audience out there for that and and seeing how many of the kind of sleeper non-prestige but still successful hits on streamers are that fit into this mode was you know something like Lincoln Lawyer seems to me like an example of a show that really and truly absolutely is a uh, USA style show from 10 years ago that happens to be on Netflix now but it feels like it feels like comfort food. It feels like this is a familiar story type engine that just happens to be on, on Netflix. And so I think a lot of people definitely appreciate that they're not in the mood at this exact moment. Like you're not hearing as many people talking about, Ooh, now is the time for our Ozark rewatch because in order to rewatch Ozark, basically you have to, you have to commit yourself to deeply serialized storytelling in the dark uh, that's just sort of miserable at a certain point. And, and that's just kind of what it is. And, you know, is it gripping television? Lots of people clearly feel like it is, but 
there's a there's also the audience out there that simply wants to watch to see what zombie brain Rose McIver is going to watch on a weekly basis or what case it is that the gang on suits is going to uh, deal with or or what major political catastrophe of the moment will the gang on the West Wing be able to magically solve in 43 minutes that in our current world, no one can solve because no one can solve anything. Absolutely, the ability to have a 43-minute thing that you can watch in an evening to unwind your brain, while that might not be the thing I'm recommending in Critics Corner, it's absolutely the thing that people crave. And getting, you know, we, we've talked repeatedly about these streaming shows that are to some degree getting these exposures in the broadcast space. And this week it was also announced that Star Trek uh, Brave New World is going to get a couple episodes. And part of why people enjoy uh, on CBS and part of why people enjoy that show is because it's kind of the... It's the old school Star Trek. It's the here's our wacky alien guest of the week. Here is our strange planet that our characters are landing on on a week. Here's basically the contained episode of a week. It has serialized elements, obviously, but it feels like the old school semi procedural sci fi version that Star Trek was in earlier incarnations that maybe Star Trek Discovery hasn't been or something like that. And so. Yeah, I think I think these are some of the answers. Reminder again, if you have any questions you'd like to hear us discuss on future episodes, be they strike related or not, drop us an email at TV's top five. That's a numeral five at THR.com. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with a critics corner. Two big launches this week, Dan. You've got Ashoka on Disney Plus and Invasion back on Apple. What you got? Um, indeed. So Ahsoka is absolutely the the biggest of the of the new shows this week, and probably the biggest show in a couple weeks because it's the Star Wars branded show. Ahsoka is almost kind of the opposite of all of those things from the question that Joy asked, because it's hard to say, and there's been a lot of debate already. It premiered this week and and Twitter has already been buzzing, Twitter and other social media platforms, because well, A among other things quote-unquote Twitter doesn't exist anymore, but we don't really call it by its other name. It's still Twitter to me. Uh, but there's been a lot of discussion, and it was discussion that led my review, is discussion that read two-thirds of the review, is basically Ahsoka is essentially a live-action follow-up to the animated Star Wars Rebels TV series. That is that is what it is. It is a it is a sequel. It is a sequel that is presenting itself as a new series, but it's a sequel. And so if the point of watching iZombie or Suits or whatever is the ability to settle in, watch a new ep- watch an episode of television that doesn't require that you really remember what happened the week before and doesn't require that you necessarily watch the next episode immediately after where things kind of stand alone, Ahsoka's not that. Now, the thing that everyone is emphasizing and that I fully believe is you will understand Ahsoka if you have not watched either Rebels or any of the other incarnations that introduced the character um, played by Rosario Dawson. You will absolutely understand. Now, part of why you will understand is because Dave Filoni, the creator of the show, makes sure there's a lot of exposition in the first two episodes, which are all the critics have seen. It is going out of its way to make sure that you know who these characters are. And it's a strange feeling because it is, again, it's a new series 
These are new incarnations of the characters, and yet the exposition, which is kind of relentless at times, wants to make it clear to you that these are characters you really probably should know. And that's disorienting if you're a viewer who didn't watch all of Rebels, is is you you feel as if the, you're, you're absolutely aware of why you're supposed to know who these characters are or know what they've gone through, but you aren't sure why you care. And so there's a, just a lot of talking about the investment that characters have in other characters who are off screen, who eventually we're going to meet and eventually are going to become kind of the linchpins of the series, but they're all off screen and all anyone is doing is talking about them. And that's, uh, it's an off-putting feeling. And to me, it absolutely kept me from getting emotionally invested in the series. Um, but at the same time, I was never lost. There was never a point at which I didn't understand what was going on. I completely and totally understood. Um, another problem that the show has, I would say, is that they have not really figured out how as a television, as a live action television character to make Ahsoka Tano an interesting character. She was limitedly interesting on her cameos on The Mandalorian and the Uh, Book of Boba Fett, and she's limitedly interesting here. And I think a lot of it has to do with kind of their commitment to making sure that Rosario Dawson looks perfect in the character, which is not the same as a commitment to making the character a compelling character if you don't already know that she looks exactly like a version of the character who existed in another form. If you're just like, why would I care about this character? I don't know that anything we've been given would give you any indication. And I think it's kind of underlined because... Um, one of the key supporting characters, uh, Sabine Wren, played by Natasha Liu Bordizo, uh, or Bordizo, Bordizo, yes, played by Natasha Liu Bordizo, is much more immediately interesting. She has a full arc over two episodes that Ahsoka does not. So I think a lot of people are going to watch these first two episodes, and if they haven't seen Rebels, their reaction is going to be, why is this show not called Sabine? Why is she not the main character on this show? because she's much more fun and entertaining than Ahsoka. They just assume that you know why Ahsoka is cool and why she's a badass, because she has, you know, she uses two lightsabers. And and if you don't know the character, I think that's all you would come away thinking in terms of why she's interesting. And, and to me, that's problem. But if you have the inv- the investment already, it wouldn't be a problem. Um, it, to me, perhaps not surprisingly under the circumstances, the characters who are new to this world. Um, Ray Stevenson as as a former Jedi turned mercenary and um, Ivana Sokno uh, as, as his apprentice. Much more interesting, honestly, than a lot of the other characters who we're supposed to know about and supposed to care about, but in, in large part because there's a gravity that Ray, Ray Stevenson brings that is so immediate and is a reminder of what a strong presence he was as an actor and the fact that he died this spring this is this is on one hand a very worthy send-off i believe he has other things in the can but for a lot of viewers this will be the last ray stevenson series slash movie they see um so yeah it's it's a good send-off and it's a it's a sad send-off because his his presence is just so strong and so compelling that he kind of dominates the screen and to me kind of dominates the show. I think Ivano Sokno, absolutely the camera is very intrigued by by her bone structure and by her eyes and by what a badass she is in her robe. I can't tell if she can act, but but she's a compelling presence as well. So there are interesting things about Ahsoka, and I, I was entertained. It's a, it's a little on the colorfully bland side. Everything is kind of set up as... Um, 
you know, here's a reference to something that you maybe or maybe should not know from an animated series that you maybe or maybe haven't watched rather than here's something that's iconic on its own. And so there's a sense that it's reproducing something. And in that, I felt like there was a lot of it that was kind of weightless. A lot of it was like, okay, well, here's here, here are the cute droids. Here are the cute aliens. Here's the alien planet. Here's the spaceship, which obviously is just going to be a Star Wars thing to begin with, but there are better ways of doing it. Um, so yeah, I, I didn't hate Ahsoka. I, I've already been accused of hating it by people in multiple different social media platforms, and I didn't. I just wasn't invested, and I sensed that I would have been if I had watched shows that it wasn't necessarily clear were homework to this show. But you don't need to. You'll understand. You just might not necessarily care. Now, speaking of the struggles of exposition, I really disliked the first season of Invasion on Apple TV+. It was basically a 10-episode slow burn. Here's how an alien, a pending alien invasion impacts people around the globe. But it there was really no alien invasion. The aliens kind of popped up in the last couple episodes. Uh, but the biggest problem was that it was trying to introduce you to a lot of characters from around the world who weren't very interesting. And so I had no real interest in a second season at all, but I started watching. And the thing I'll say without any question is that this is a much more entertaining season of television. I think that it is probably very, very close to what some people probably wanted Invasion to be in the first place. And I think it's probably roughly where Invasion should have gotten by episode four or five. And instead it took nine or 10 episodes to get there where yes, there are different characters in different countries and whatever, but there are also aliens and there are life and death stakes and the thing moves along it it's not entirely though without downsides also if there was anything interesting about the first season it really was the international side of it here are how people in japan are responding here are how people are responding in london in random parts of the united states etc and there was a cultural specificity to it there was a geographical specificity there was a sense of global sprawl the new season has almost none of that the the new season it could almost be said anywhere. None of the locations are the least bit distinctive. It, my sense is that the money and the budget was moved from travel and locations directly into special effects, which means that there are aliens. And the aliens, for people who watched the first season, they're pretty cool. They're they're sort of spiky and shifty, and and they've got terrifying mouths with lots of, of, of teeth, and they're sort of... They're like malevolent ink blots, and I, I find that a cool version of, of alien world building in that respect. Um, so I, I can understand that. But if you spend 10 episodes developing really uninteresting characters in uninteresting situations, you can't suddenly <laughs> make them interesting just because suddenly there actually are aliens everywhere. And so the subplots that weren't interesting in the first season, I'm, I'm thinking of Shamir Anderson's uh, Trevante Cole, the, the soldier in, in Afghanistan who got lost and wandered around the desert for basically 10 episodes or nine episodes, then ended up in London overnight. It was a bad storyline. You can't suddenly expect me to care about him now. I spent 10 episodes not caring about him, and his storyline this season is not at all interesting. Uh, the British school children storyline. Somebody at Stranger Things needs to consider if if they have a lawsuit because it's it's very close to plagiarism at this point. It, there there are aspects of how those characters are handled and and the dynamics between those characters that are completely and totally Stranger Things. There's there's not even any varnishing to it. it so whatever. But the show itself at this point 
always was so very derivative and it just feels more so the the stranger things stuff feels more stranger things the stuff that resembles arrival feels more like the arrival overall what it feels like as a show is probably very much um it's falling skies the the tnt show which was about people fighting back after an alien invasion so that's what this feels like um so okay so going back again i didn't think i was interested at all in the second season of uh invasion and and i found myself absolutely interested and then my interest started to waver i made it through six episodes because i wasn't reviewing it i i stopped after six episodes so but on the other hand the fact that it rejuvenated my interest for uh six episodes is not unimpressive or not unnotable. Whatever it was, that's what it was. Uh, the question that inevitably people are going to ask, and so I will attempt to answer it, can you jump in at, season, at the start of season two? Because, uh, because yeah, because you didn't like season one, so can I jump in? Or if I tuned out season one after an episode or two, can I jump in? And the answer is kind of. <laughs> like like what my response would be is, sure you can, but you won't have experienced the eight, epi- eight to ten episodes of boredom that some of us experienced with the characters in the first season, so you won't have that investment in being bored by these characters. <laughs> so, so yeah, the other thing is, this show premiered nearly two years ago. I didn't remember all the details, and most of the details really and truly don't matter. You 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 can catch on, and if the idea of a somewhat more international um, version of Falling Skies seems entertaining to you, I, I think you could probably jump in. And I am definitely not going to be like, you know, you got to sit through all 10 episodes to understand. I think realistically, if you watch the first four episodes, you probably spent enough time being bored by these characters and you can just jump right in because you kind of recognize them, but you've also forgotten about them. So there's that. Uh <laughs> Anyway, honestly, my favorite thing uh, that premiered this week and that you can watch on HBO Max now is the HBO documentary uh, BS High, uh, which is about the Bishop Sycamore scandal. And if you're a sports fan, you probably paid some attention to it. The, The basic story is that ESPN aired a nationally televised game between IGM Academy, which is a football powerhouse kind of a high school, but mostly a football preparatory school, and Bishop Sycamore. Bishop Sycamore got routed. The announcers started becoming increasingly concerned throughout the episode by why this overmatched team was playing on national TV against a powerhouse. And then it came to turn out afterwards that Bishop Sycamore didn't really exist as a school. That the whole thing was this strange college preparatory football scandal like Firefest for high school football players. And the documentary, which is directed by uh, Trayvon Free and Martin Desmond Rowe, does a really good job of breaking it down. Uh, lots of the players on the Bishop Sycamore team um, are are on camera, including the coach, who was kind of the the central con man. And there are a lot of lots of debates about whether or not he views himself as a con man or not, and what he how he justifies that to himself. Uh, my biggest problem with the documentary is that no one from ESPN, which televised the game apparently without doing due diligence into fifty percent of the teams in the game, um, and IGM Academy, which booked this other football team apparently without doing doing due diligence on the football team they were playing uh there's no input from that side of things and to me that's a major miss uh but maybe that's the thing for the documentary in two to five years when people have a little bit more space and can talk about it as it stands now it's really entertaining 
A lot of it is really mind-boggling, and it's an interesting perspective on the nature of today's sports landscape, particularly today's sports, high school sports landscape and the commodification of high school sports in America. Um, so yeah, I, I really like um, BS High, which you can stream on uh, on Max. So yeah, so a couple a couple things I'm mixed on, and then a documentary that I really enjoy. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to the Hollywood Reporter's Now See This newsletter and bookmark thr.com slash TV dash reviews for more. That feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. You can subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms if you like us rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing. Those suckers help spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter, uh, Blue Sky, wherever you happen to be, wherever your various social media needs are being met these days. Uh, as always, Leslie is at Snoodit with two O's. I'm at The Fine Print, F-I-E-N. Come say hi. We appreciate all of the great work that you have been doing in sending us mailbag questions two segments this week. Thank you. Email us and there. thank you to everyone who uh, sent along their address. Y'all, I got about uh, a nice stack of mail with stickers going out this weekend uh, where I'm, I think I maybe have one or two more left. Yes, she is running out. But if you uh, if you put in your request now, maybe you'll still get it. And maybe we'll order another batch. Who the heck knows? But anyway, email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's TV's top five, the numeral five, at THR.com. Since we are taking next week off, until two weeks from now, Leslie. See y'all September 8th.